Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Dina Gashman. She's a Pulitzer Center grantee, an award-winning journalist, and a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Fox, Texas Monthly, Teen Vogue, and more. She also writes a monthly movie column for the New York Times. She's a best-selling ghostwriter, and her first book, Brokenomics, was published by Hachette Seal Press. Her new book of essays about grief, So Sorry for Your Loss, was just published by Union Square & Company. And she spent three years as head copywriter on Clio award-winning content for Uprock Studios. She has appeared on ABC's 2020, CBS We Are Austin, Chicago's WGN, and Texas Standard. She's written two comic books for Blue Water Comics about legendary superheroes Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor. She lives near Austin, Texas with her husband and son. Welcome, Dina. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that you're here, and it's exciting for me to be able to talk to someone out of Texas. I wasn't (laughs) sure if you were going to have an accent, but I don't know that you do. It's well, some people say I do. It depends on who I'm talking to. If I'm if I'm interviewing somebody that's in like a tiny Texas town, then my accent comes out full swing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Okay, I just heard it. I just heard it. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So can you share? You've done a lot, and we're going to try to cover so much of it. But I do want to focus on. So sorry for your loss. So can you share a little bit about that book? Sure. So this is my second book. I've been a writer, you know, all my life, basically since seventh grade, (laughs) but this is my second book and it's a book of essays about grief and loss. And it's rooted in my experiences of losing my mom to colon cancer in 2018. And then my sister Jackie to alcoholism two years later. And so each chapter looks at a different aspect of loss. And, and I would guess I'd call it part memoir, part narrative reporting Mm -hmm. because I did interview a lot of psychologists and I interviewed a death doula and I interviewed other people about their own personal loss. So, so I wove reporting throughout, I guess the other aspect is there's some humor in there because I felt like if I'm going to be writing about such tough stuff, I'm a, I'm a big believer in a little bit of humor can go a long Mm -hmm. way for that. Mm -hmm, For sure. Now, what's interesting to me, so before I became a podcaster, as a writer, I I think I kind of talked about grief or wrote about a little bit, but it wasn't the same way that a lot of other people more oriented with grief approach it. And, And I learned a lot as a podcaster in my first show about people who are dealing with grief and long term loss. And so I I guess, what I'm asking is before you lost your mother, and then your sister, Jackie, what had been your experience? You know, what was your understanding of grief? Well, it was, you know, I had lost, you know, before my mom died, I'd lost all four grandparents who I adored all of them. And, and I was, you know, of course, sad. And especially my last grandfather, Big Papa, we call, mm. called him and we were very close and he made it to 95. So that was, I remember like doubling over sobbing, like it was, it was very mm-hmm. hard, but, and I actually have lost a lot of friends, um, strangely you know, just people that I grew up with and went to high school with. Is it disease or? You know, the most of them, it's kind of interesting. It's all males and it's all either substance abuse or mental health related issues. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. Thank you. So that, you know, I, you know, one of my close friends, Aaron, that I, you know, we were like best friends since, gosh, third grade. That was one of the first that really hit me, but it was such a different, you know, with my mom and sister, it was a whole different experience of grief, mm-hmm. which is, which is what, sort of compelled me to, to actually write about it. I'd never written about it before, but it, it was a completely different, just physical, emotional, spiritual thing to lose those two people. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that you you really do weave in that narrative reporting. Did you know when you were putting the book together? I'd love to hear about your process, how the proposal process went, or how you knew that you had a book deal. And really, if you knew that the format for this book going in was going to be partly relying on narrative reporting, or if you thought it was going to be something different. I did actually, I didn't really think, I hadn't really written about grief. The first thing I I wrote about grief was an essay for the New York Times about my mom. Um, And so I wrote that. I'd never thought about a book. I wanted to write about our hospice experience because it was so horrible, but also Mm -hmm. kind of darkly humorous. So I, I sort of thought about writing these things as essays, but I didn't think about a book until My sister died March 1st, 2021. So that summer is kind of when I started thinking at the beginning of that summer, like, I think there's a grief book that, that I, it's that famous Toni Morrison quote of, you know, if there's a book Mm -hmm. you want to read and you can't find it, you should write it. And not that there's not amazing grief books because there are, and and there continue to be, but I just, I wanted a book that was very raw and honest, that had humor, but that also had reporting. And so the reporting was always part of it. And I, so I had called my agent who I've been with for a long time and said, I think I want to write a book about grief and being jaded, but wonderful age. <laughs> she was like, well, there's a lot of grief books. I don't know. And she's like, why don't you put together the proposal? So I did, I worked really hard on the proposal. I interviewed so, I mean, so many more people than, than are in the book. Um, wow. Too, too so many. you interviewed people. This is really interesting to me. So you interviewed people in preparation, like for the proposal. It wasn't yes. even a book yet. No. And I would, you know, I'm always upfront whether I'm writing an article. Sometimes I'll actually interview somebody for a pitch of an article. And, but I always make clear, like, this is for the pitch, you know. Mm-hmm. And so for the book, I said, this is for a proposal and made it very clear. But yes, I interviewed quite a few people for the proposal, put a lot of work into it. And so it was that format. It was, it was you know, rooted in my own story largely, but it had all this reporting woven throughout. And so she... I remember she said, this is pretty great, which to a writer, you know, she may as well say, like, you're the queen of the world. (laughs) She's like, oh my God, it's pretty great. Um, So she said, I think I can sell this. And so we went on submission, which is just, you know, a harrowing (laughs) experience, unless you're like Michelle Obama. Um, I'm sure she didn't even have to go on submission, but... um, But, you know, we went through that experience and then, you know, Union Square was just amazing. I loved my editor there. And the book is pretty much what the proposal was, honestly. It had, it had less interviews just because I think it was too crowded in the proposal, mm-hmm. but it's pretty much exactly the same. I don't think in, I don't think much changed. Mm-hmm. So that is lovely to hear. And it sounds like you spent a long time on the proposal. Can you talk about that a little bit? I, I like to get into the nuts and bolts. You have a lot of experience in this area. And I think some of my episodes are very craft-based. Some of them are very story-based. Some of them are very business-based. And some of them are an amalgam. But I think whenever I have someone like you on the show who's really been doing this for a while, it's really good to get in there and kind of understand the process. Because so many people who are writing a book, I mean, me included my first time around, didn't even understand the proposal part. So, I mean, with all of your books, have you written a proposal? Did you write a proposal for them? Yes. So my first book, um, Brokenomics, I wrote a proposal. And I and that's how I got my agent, Brandy. And, and I gave her my draft, which I'm sure was terrible because I had no idea what I was doing mm-hmm. at that time. And so she helped mm-hmm. me on that. Um, and then between that and So Sorry for Your Loss, I actually have, I do a lot of ghostwriting for celebrities. So I've worked on, I don't even know how many proposals, you know, between the two books. And so mm-hmm. I definitely kind of learned 
what you need and, and what helps. So yeah, with this proposal, I put a lot into it because this is your sales pitch, right? I mean, this is what's going to sell it, not just to an editor who's looking at the creative portion, but to the sales team and the marketing team. So that's all really important. So I kind of knew just from all the ghostwriting I'd done, like what the format was going to be. But, you know, I also knew that they need to get a flavor of my writing and what this book is and, and what a chapter is going to feel like. So I, I definitely put, um, I worked really hard. <laughs> do you like writing proposals? Um, I do. I mean, even with the celebrities, because it's, the proposal is interesting because it, I mean, you're literally creating something with nothing from nothing. I almost think with ghostwriting, at least the proposal is harder than the book for sure, because hmm. you have no idea what, what a chapter is going to be or, or any or the, the through lines. And so I do think it's an interesting process to you're figuring out your book, which is actually kind of a cool thing. And I always tell mm. people that I work with, like, it's a blueprint, you know, so mm -hmm. don't be intimidated that this is, this is it. Like every chapter in the proposal, you, you're locked in for life. Like you can always change things. It's just, it's the blueprint to show people what your book is and, and how it feels and how it sounds um, is kind of how I look at it. Hmm. Have you ever written a proposal for a project you were interested in? And then as you wrote the proposal, realized, I don't think I want to write this book. I mean, I had so many ideas for books between my two books. <laughs> it took a really long time. I have a whole list. I looked back and I'm like, wow, that's a terrible idea. Um, so yeah, <laughs> Wait, so I love I love that because I'm asking. I have to I have to unveil the real reason I asked that because I did that. Not that I'm some proposal aficionado. Like I'm not that great at it. I don't think it's like a little work for me. It's not something I love doing. I have yet mm. to meet. I don't know that I know many writers who enjoy the process, but I haven't polled everyone. Yeah. But um, I remember writing something. It's happened to me. Yeah, it happened to me once or twice now where I thought, that's a really good idea. I want to do this. And I really worked on the proposal. Not as hard as you. Definitely not. It was earlier stages. And then I was like, I don't want to write this book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. do this, which saved me. But I had bought all these books and was excerpting from them and using them as references. A whole bunch of books for this book. And now <laughs> they're just sitting there. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to write that book. Yeah. I mean, that's just how it goes, right? That's the process. You can, you can be like, this is it. This is my passion. And then all of a sudden, you know, maybe that your energy for it just kind of goes away and you got to listen to that I think but yes mm. I have I have sort of half started things I've half started novels like it's there's a bunch of stuff mm -hmm. out there that I haven't completed mm -hmm. yeah so you have a lot of energy I mean because also I feel like ghostwriting too because then after you you actually get a book okayed and it's gonna it's got an agent and a publisher then you have to write that celebrity's book mm -hmm. yeah which takes a while yeah it does. I mean, it depends on, you know, some of them are super quick. It's actually because, you know, they want to time it to their show premiering or whatever. And mm. you're just like, wow, I really, we have to do this in like four months or something insane. Um, and then some of them you get a little bit longer lead time, but it is, it's a, it's a definitely a different process with celebrities. I feel like I'm almost interviewing them. It's almost like I'm being a journalist. Yeah. Um, that's what I was Cause you need all the information yes, so that you can yeah. then go write it. Yeah. I'd much prefer doing my own book. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, do all that. You don't have to assimilate all that. Yes. So I was hoping that you could read. You can set up and read from the excerpt that we talked about um, in chapter seven, and sure. you can do any background that you feel like we need to know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was actually when I saw that you chose this chapter, it was interesting to me because this was definitely the hardest chapter in the book to write, um, and it's the oh. hardest. It's the hardest for me to go back to and. Not in a bad way. I'm glad to be reading it. But... Oh, well, we're going to talk about it, too, because actually I picked it because I wanted to talk about what what comes up for me when I when I read it. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it, so, yeah. so this is a chapter. It's chapter seven, and it's called Mourning Them When They're Here But Not. And 
my sister Jackie, who suffered from alcoholism for years and years, she's, she's throughout the book, but this chapter specifically about her, about her disease, about her death. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, I had never written about her, so it was very um, real tough to write, but I will just, I'll read that and then we can talk about it. It was mid-morning in Manhattan. I was walking up 15th Street towards 5th Avenue, heading to the upscale sushi restaurant where I worked. I was scheduled for a double that day, which meant that for at least eight hours, I would be serving Ebi, Hamachi, and a slow-poached octopus that one critic called outrageously good. There was a bodega on 5th that I sometimes ran into before work to stock up on important contraband like gum, also known as a little piece of heaven that I was only allowed to chew between shifts. Just as I was getting close enough to turn the corner, there she was. Instead of calling out to her, I froze. She crossed the intersection alone, wearing what seemed like clothes from the night before. Then again, she always did dress like a movie star, even if she was just heading to Walgreens for some chapstick. Her shock of bright burgundy hair made her impossible to miss. That hair had become her signature look. The wild color never ceased to frustrate her mom, whose philosophy was the blonder the better, especially if you're brunette. Jackie wasn't trying to blend in, though. She loved glamour and drama, so maybe it was her way of making a statement or standing out. On the day I saw her crossing Fifth Avenue, Jackie lived in Queens and I lived in Brooklyn, so the chances of us running into each other in Manhattan at 11 a.m. in a city of over 8 million people seemed slim. I'd only been there for a few months, and it was the first time my sister and I had lived in the same city since I was in high school. I had decided to leave California for New York right after graduate school, not for fortune or fame, but for love. My stay only lasted one year, and during that time, the severity of my sister's alcoholism was something I could no longer ignore. If our relationship were normal, if I knew then what I know now, I would have called her name that day in the street, run to her, hugged her. If things were different, we would have laughed about how random and strange and lucky this was. Instead of yelling her name, though, I prayed she wouldn't see me. As quickly as she appeared, Jackie disappeared into the mass of people coming and going never knowing that her eldest sister was standing 10 feet away, looking right at her. Instead of going to the bodega, I turned back and headed into work. That encounter haunts me. Years went by, and I never told Jackie that I saw her that day. I didn't tell most people, since explaining the complexities of loving an alcoholic to anyone who hasn't lived it can be challenging. How could I not say hello to my own flesh and blood? The baby sister who slept in my bed when she was little because she was too scared to sleep alone. Was I cruel, intolerant, devoid of sympathy? It wasn't my sister crossing the intersection that day, though. It was the person she became when her addiction took over, and that person had flaked on lunches and dinners for months without texting or calling, making up excuses that didn't add up and sending me into an anxiety spiral as I constantly worried about whether she was okay or even alive. That person disappeared and reemerged when she needed something. I didn't know how to talk to that person without my heart breaking and without becoming filled with rage that this is where we had ended up and that she couldn't do the simplest things like show up. When we did manage to meet up, it was often at the Whole Foods in Union Square, a few blocks from my job. It was an easy commute for me and I figured that if Jackie did flake, I would at least be close to the restaurant where I worked. We'd meet out front, pick our food, and then take the escalator to the second floor to eat. I remember riding behind her one day, looking out the tall glass windows to the crowded streets outside, and then up at Jackie, inches in front of me, yet feeling so far away. We didn't talk on the ride up. My stomach was in knots, which I now recognize as anxiety. 
Back then, my nerves just confused me, and the confusion in turn made me angry. Why did it have to be so hard just to come face to face with my own sister? Thank you. Of course. That makes me sad to read. Yeah, I wondered about that. I thought I heard that in your voice, and I'm I'm glad that you told me before you began what your thoughts were about this section and mm-hmm. that it was it was definitely a part that was difficult for you and mm-hmm. if it's okay with you I would love to talk a little bit about the the complicated feelings you have about Jackie but also choosing to include this section well writing it approaching this material mm-hmm. choosing to lean into it and how it feels now that it's in your book yeah I mean I guess another big reason that I that I wanted to write this book was that I feel like my sister and so many people like her are often kind of tossed off you know as oh just another alcoholic or you know I just feel like she never kind of got her due Mm -hmm. (laughs) because she really was an incredible person when she was sober um and so a big motivator for me writing this was really to pay tribute to her and, and people like her so I it was important for me but you know I had written about my mom before but never about Jackie never about our relationship and you know, this is about memoir and I've written so many personal essays. I just did not know how to write about her. So this chapter I knew was going to be tough because it was that tribute. Like I'd never done that for her. So it was tough, but in a, in a very good way. Like even if I was crying and taking walks with my dog, I felt like this is why I'm writing the book. And I really wanted to speak to people who have these kind of relationships because they're so tough and there's, you can be, it can be really lonely, right? Cause it's those those emotions are very hard to understand. So mm-hmm. the process was tough. And it's, you know, with memoir too, it's always that question of like, well, are they okay? You're writing about them. And I had talked to Jackie the year before she died, she was sober. And that, and during that year, I thought maybe, I, maybe I'm ready to write about our relationship. So I asked her when she was sober, you know, how would you feel about if I write about our relationship and your alcoholism? And she said, of course, I think it would help people. And so I think having mm-hmm. that knowledge mm-hmm. helped me with this chapter because she was so open about it. Mm-hmm. otherwise mm-hmm. it may have been a little harder but you know now having it out there I feel like I don't know it's a, it's a cool thing to me to feel like you know some random person I don't know can read about my sister and sort of learn about this person that's no longer here but who was amazing even if you know walking mm-hmm. down the street you may not know that so it means a lot to me that people can maybe get to know her a little bit I also feel strongly that I got to know you more because of this because I think that it's so it's so human to, I mean, th- we do these things, right? Like I, I've i seen someone in the city before where I knew them and I walked away or I turned mm-hmm. away. I've done that in the grocery store. Yeah. And the idea that this is your sister is even more significant. And I think yeah. the fact that you're able to share that, I mean, of course, it's really fraught material. And because she's no longer here, it's a risk for you as a writer, right? Like when we share these things, it's so many things, this type of memoir, but it's a very big risk to allow the reader to see the light we're shining on ourselves, even when we're not proud of our behavior or when we might want to redo or maybe not, or maybe maybe the the big aha is we would never do it differently. We still wouldn't have been able to do it, to see her, right? To, To talk to her, but to... To, to sort that out on the page, to offer it to the reader with this honesty and this, you're not villainizing yourself and you're not villainizing your sister, I think is really valuable. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny when I think about it now, when I knew I was going to be writing this chapter, I, 
I always knew I was going to start it with that scene, which is a scene that I'm not proud of. And that, mm. I mean, I understand looking back, I'm, you know, trying to give myself compassion, like why I did it, you know, because I just knew it would trigger me right before work. And, you know, things have been really hard with us, but I wanted to start it with that because it was something that I'm not, you know, it was very tough and it was hard to admit, but I felt like that's how I needed to get mm-hmm. into, into the chapter, really. Mm-hmm. You, you say on page 128, you, you write, on that call, I said goodbye quickly, not because I was angry with her, and, and this is Jackie, as I had been so many times in the past. I had learned enough about addiction by then not to be angry. I was just worn out. And I was hoping, you touched on it a little bit, but can you talk about what you've come to understand about loved ones coping with addiction? Yes, a lot <laughs> over the years. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing I did learn, you know, the book definitely was me trying to sort of understand all of these things um, and hopefully speak to people that are trying to understand in their own life. But one thing that I learned about while researching and doing the interviews is, is this idea of ambiguous loss. And this is something that a friend of mine who I interviewed for the book, her father, I mean, she should write a memoir, but her father was kidnapped by Al-Qaeda and, and eventually killed. And so mm-hmm. she told me about um, this ambiguous loss which is basically a form of grief that is not triggered by death it's triggered by the change in a relationship so it could be dementia it could be substance abuse and estrangement you know whereas where you you're you're grieving the relationship you had and the fact that you can't have it again and so once Mm -hmm. I learned that I was like oh that's what I was feeling Mm -hmm. all those years that's why I didn't say hi in the street is is I was experiencing this kind of loss when to me it was just a bunch jumble of feelings So that was very helpful. But one thing I learned, you know, when Jackie was still alive is I went to an Al-Anon meeting finally because, you know, loving somebody with substance abuse is just, it it takes a huge toll on Mm -hmm. everyone. Um, So I learned about this idea of detaching with love, which is basically allows you to kind of um, step away without guilt. I mean, you're human, Mm -hmm. so you're going to have a little guilt, but it allows you to say like, I'm going to get off the phone and I love you and call me when you're sober and you can go about your life and not let it destroy Mm -hmm. you. So those things were very helpful for me, just dealing with all of this. I think those two things helped. Mm-hmm. By the way, I should mention that I had not heard of ambiguous loss either. And the way you just described it makes so much sense to me. Yeah. I mean, among all the other things that it brings up for me, it also makes me remember that we have permission to have our feelings. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Now, you know, I know your story, so I'm sure maybe with your mom too, that was like a, that was probably a, prevalent thing I'd imagine because I think you're probably right I hadn't <laughs> considered it yeah because yeah. I people have reached out about that concept I didn't coin it it's you know it's Dr. Mm-hmm. Pauline Boss did but um mm-hmm. you know one woman reached out and she said my daughter's an alcoholic and she said no one sends flowers for this kind of grief and I think that's mm-hmm. that kind of defines it is like you're living with this grief but there's no rituals there's no you know there's no flowers mm-hmm. What about your family? How have they responded to this book? I mean, I know that you're a personal essay writer and you've mm-hmm. put yourself and your story out there before. What was their what was their reaction to this book? Well, they're very so my dad is, you know, we're very, very close. And then my two sisters who are still living, um, you know, they were when I told them I was writing this, they were like, Of course. And I let my dad read. There's a chapter on my dad starting to date <laughs> about two years after my mom died. He actually went on Tinder, which is a whole saga. <laughs> we got him off. We got him off Tinder, but um, he's 70 years old. It was not good. But so that chapter I gave to him before I even gave it to the editor, because that's, you know, it's his personal dating story and about his relationship with my mom. So I did want him to have, you know, I wanted his sort of okay 
for that, but mm-hmm. they've been very supportive. You know, I'm, I'm lucky that my family is like, you know, go ahead and whatever you want, really. You know, my dad, the only things he wanted me to change were I was writing about him giving my mom like, cause he tried every vitamin when she was on chemo that he possibly could and like uh, keto diets and stuff. And so I think I had written something like he gave her all kinds of tinctures and potions. And he's, he's like, can you not say tinctures and potions? <laughs> can you say like vitamins? You know, like, okay. That was like one of his changes. So, um, but yeah, so they've been really sweet and supportive. And my mom was always like, write whatever you want. So you know, it, I think it would have been way harder if they were, um, yeah. I can imagine people who write memoirs whose, whose family or who they're writing about is like, I don't want this out there. It mm-hmm. would be really hard. But luckily, I did not have that. Yeah. And your family overall seems really close. I don't know if you would say that's true. I'm not saying yes. it's not without its complications, like yeah. all families. But I just got a really strong sense of closeness and, and love mm-hmm. yeah. about your family. Yeah. I mean, of course, every family has their things, but we're definitely close. And Losing my mom and sister brought my, my dad and sisters and I are on a text chain that there's probably like 50 <laughs> texts a minute. It's more ridiculous. So yes, we're all very imagine. close. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your other work in our last little bit of time together. So you've published so much and a lot of people haven't yet made inroads in journals and magazines and newspapers. And I know you've been doing this for a while mm-hmm. and you've been a freelance writer for so long and you've done, you wear a lot of different hats, ghostwriter and memoirist now and all the things. So I, I'm wondering what advice you could maybe share. And I know it's a broad topic, mm-hmm. but about connecting with editors and getting your work in front of the right people to start getting these bylines. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I started, I mean, my first bylines were at my college newspaper forever ago, and then I did like an internship at a at a weekly, and I just kind of built up. And over the years, you know, I started at smaller blogs, and you just got to get those first bylines. And chances are, the first byline is not going to be the New Yorker, <laughs> and if it is, hats off to you. I, you just have to find those places where you think your story is going to fit. And and I wouldn't necessarily just email an editor and be like, hey, I'm so-and-so, you know, hire me. Like I would go to them when you have a pitch. And, you know, I would just start by seeking out those blogs or those sites that maybe they may not pay the big bucks, but they're going to pay something. I mean, I hate telling people to write for free. So, you know, I think the, the good ones I think a lot pay. of people listening write for free. I know. I think I, think it, I kind of write for free I, No, I did. I, in the beginning, I definitely, like I think Huff, HuffPost, I don't know if they pay now, but when they I did. was writing yeah. for them, they didn't. But I got some really good bylines that like, I'm like, okay, you, now I could send it to somewhere else and say, hey, I wrote this thing and it was published. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't think I'd say like, don't ever do it, but you, you need to get those bylines and, and just find the places that you love to read and the kind of stories that you love to read and and focus on those um, because that's what I do a lot. I have certain sites that I just, I feel like my voice fits with. Um, mm-hmm. Like I love writing for Texas Monthly. I think it's just a a very good fit and I feel it took me a very long time to break those doors down really (laughs) oh yes I mean I pitched I don't know for how long and and finally got in there um yeah most of the places I it it took a while to get in there so I, I would say just be gentle with the editors because sometimes they have like 800 emails and you know just reach out with a pitch and even if that pitch does not get accepted their your name will be in their inbox and so it's not a bad way to just say hey I have this idea and, mm-hmm. and just get to know them a little bit 
Now, this is, I love that you said this because when I first started pitching editors, if they didn't respond to me, I just assumed they didn't want it and done. But then mm. I started hearing from other writers that they would follow up with editors. Oh, yes. And they and I thought, I thought, how could you do that? <laughs> you know, why would you bother an editor? But is it a good idea to repeatedly ping an editor? What do you think? What's the balance? I think, I mean, it's it definitely is a balance because you don't, want to bug them and you know some editors just ghost you and it's so frustrating because <laughs> I'm always like why is it so hard to just write no but um, you know just like say no <laughs> but how you. do you know like how do you know if they've read it and they don't want it or they're or they're like I just didn't see this I didn't get to it I mean my thing is if it's an editor I've worked with a bunch I would expect that they would get back to me but not you know not mm -hmm. always but if it's somebody you've never worked with I would unless it's timely you know give it two weeks and just send a gentle like hey just checking back on this Mm -hmm. And then probably move on, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there has there have been cases where I have checked in like three, four times, but that's mm -hmm. only because it's an editor I've worked with repeatedly and I know they're terrible at getting back. And <laughs> occasionally they'll be like, oh yeah, sorry, I want to do this. But I wouldn't do that for an editor you don't know yes. and, and have a relationship with because then you're going to be like that writer that's just bugging them. So, but I think definitely follow up, absolutely, because most of them don't get right back you so I would I think a general rule is like two weeks a nice little mm -hmm. a nice little nudge yeah I love that and also I've learned right I mean I'm learning all the time and when I first learned that my peers were following up with editors I was aghast as I just <laughs> mentioned but <laughs> then I do it now I do it right like yeah. I just learn you keep your wits about you keep your antenna out learn from your peers learn mm -hmm. from your community take some chances and you just sort of accumulate this like toolkit Yes. And, you know, unless you're being a jerk, like, hey, why haven't you read this? <laughs> Which hopefully you're not doing like, you know, the worst thing is they're not just not going to respond and it's okay. But it is, it's scary following up. I get it. I still get nervous, but you got to do it because most of them need a nudge for sure. Yeah. And I would also say that it's not even personal most of the time, no, I would say, no. because it, it's just, they didn't see it. It doesn't yeah. mean that they, they've even spent enough time. Yeah to not like what you pitched. Exactly. They probably don't even have the bandwidth for it. Exactly. Yeah, I've, I've sent pitches where I don't hear back and I'm like, they hate my writing. They're <laughs> this is the worst. It's terrible. They're probably laughing at me and then they'll be like, oh, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, and so. also it taught me, it's something that I've learned as I've gotten older is like no one is thinking about me that hard. Exactly, yes. <laughs> no matter what. No. So what about advice? Uh, I know that you've been giving advice throughout this whole conversation, but is there any other advice you'd like to share for writers working on their memoirs? One thing I, I learned with so sorry for your loss, especially is that some of the things that I were most, that I was most scared to write about are the things that I am so glad are in the book. And so there, there are certain things that, that I got cold feet or I would tell the editor, like, I don't like, there's a chapter about losing pets and then another chapter about losing children. And both of those chapters from the proposal, I was like, I, I don't want to do them. I was just too nervous for, for different reasons. The pets seemed too frivolous. The children once I was terrified to talk to parents and she was like, no, you got to do it. And I'm so glad. And then, you know, writing about my sister was, there were certain things in that chapter that I didn't have initially. And, and so I would say like, push through your fear if you can, and you could just see how it feels at least. You can always pull back, but I would just mm -hmm. push through your fear and put those things that you may be really scared of judgment about on the page and see how it feels to you. Because those things are probably gonna resonate because you're being honest and mm -hmm. you don't wanna write a memoir that you're kind of like half telling the truth. Thank you. And I think it's also, it speaks to the, the idea that these are drafts mm -hmm, exactly. and you can make decisions and calibrations later. Yes. But to not explore is not as good of an option for a memoirist. 
Yes, I think definitely explore and play and like I have all kinds of random stuff in this book. Like I'm quoting Plutarch and like things that I never imagined I would do. And I would just kind of have fun with it and, and research whether you're including, um, I love research, but whether you're including, you know, interviews or reporting or anything, I think that always can like kind of spice up your own story of just Mm -hmm. falling into a rabbit hole of if you're writing about, um, your pet, like maybe find some interesting, like things from history that you could include. So I think the research part of it's also I don't think that typically goes with memoir, but I, I think it can add to your book. Mm-hmm. And what are some of your favorite memoirs? I love Barbarian Days, which is by William Finnegan. It won the Pulitzer several years ago, but it's it's such a beautiful, it's basically like a surfing memoir, but it's really mm-hmm. about getting older and the passage of time. It's so beautiful. And then I love Lauren Huff. She wrote Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. She's another Texas writer, but mm-hmm. um, she's working on her second book, so I'm excited. She's just a fierce writer. I mean, mm-hmm. her writing is incredible. And I also love people like, you know, Nora Ephron and our Eric Thomas, because they're just so funny um, and have a, a lighter touch. They're talking about s- serious things, but they can do it with a light touch. So I love that. Is there a particular, I know it's hard to pick. Mm-hmm. Is there one or two that you'd want to shout out that I can add to the show notes of theirs? So our Eric Thomas, his his first book, Here For It, is hysterical. I'm about to read his second book, but yeah, Here For It is just so good. And then Nora Ephron, I would say, um, I feel bad about my neck. <laughs> it's her book about getting older, which is the best so title funny. ever. I know because a couple of years ago, I didn't understand what she meant or 10 years ago. And now I'm like, oh, I know what she you know, meant. You're like, I feel bad about my neck too. I hear you, girl. <laughs> um, thank you for those. Okay. And then where can people find you? So my website's dinagashmanwrites.com. And then I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I think Instagram's dgashman and Twitter's just my name. And then threads, I don't even know what my name is on there. <laughs> but I'm on there. I know. It looks like we all have to head over there because I've, I'm just hearing more rumblings about X or whatever it is Yes, now. I know. It's getting totally <laughs> ridiculous. Thank you so much. I love talking with you. And Thank I you. just feel like you're a wealth of knowledge. And I'm just so happy we had this time together. Me too. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. 